This is Seattle's Morning News. We're following this morning's arguments of the U.S. Supreme Court on whether Trump's appearance on the Colorado ballot would violate the 14th Amendment. The most interesting argument raised by Trump's lawyers so far, to me anyway, is that the way this is being argued, each state could conceivably interpret insurrection differently. So what what Trump's attorney is saying is if, okay, if the Supreme Court says, Colorado, yes, you are right to to disqualify him for insurrection, who gets to determine what an insurrection is? Colorado may interpret it one way. Washington state may interpret it another way. Mm. Another argument, and I and I think this goes to the root of the 14th Amendment, is that it's about holding an office, not about running for right. office. So they spend a lot of time talking about, well, what if somebody's 34 but turns 35 on inauguration? Do they get kicked off the ballot because they're 34, even though they'd be eligible for presidency at 35? Because the 14th Amendment, Section 3, does say no person should shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office. Right. Does not say running for office, which is what Colorado is trying to prevent the president from former president from doing. And that's the vague part. Some states essentially say that if you don't qualify, if you they can, I guess they it's up to them to decide whether the age thing kicks in once you assume office or when you're running for office. I think what they don't want to do is put somebody on the ballot who at the time of assuming office would not qualify. Now, age is unique in that it changes over time. Your status as a citizen, for example, I guess could change over time, but unless you're sort of in the pipeline to get your citizenship by the time you're in office, why would you put that person on the ballot? And also, are you an insurrectionist once and always. <laughs> I suppose they well, could argue that, too. Actually, I think that makes this a little bit easier for the insurrection argument, right? Because that's not going to change over time. You can't change the past. This is a disqualification based on an act this person committed in the past. Well, which can you he denounce has, your actions? Which can has, you say, I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I'm not an insurrectionist can, anymore? Can I, can I say I didn't mean to rob that bank officer, <laughs> and therefore yeah. I'm not a bank robber? But again, this is about holding office, not running for office. And the former president hasn't been accused of being an insurrectionist. That's true. Right. Or convicted, convicted of, that. of that, not even charged with it. Yeah. That's true. So, so then the argument would be, like, if it is... Okay, you can run for office despite being accused of being an insurrectionist. If you win, the 14th Amendment says you can't hold the office. So then would you become right. disqualified through so the if US we go, That's Court. right. So if we run with that argument that, okay, since you don't hold the office, you can still run. But what happens if he's elected and the Jack Smith case goes to trial and they decide, yes, that was an insurrection yeah. and you're accused of it? I guess the Secret Service knocks on the bedroom door of the president and says, sir, we have to leave now. Mm-hmm. Right. What we haven't no. heard, though, is Colorado's side of the case. So we, we carried about a half hour of the oral arguments in which uh, the former president's attorneys are answering questions from the justices. And we're awaiting to hear if Colorado will have a chance today ahead of the justices and what the questioning will be. We heard a lot of the you know so-called liberal justices do the questioning here at front. Now we have Neil Gorsuch up there um, as so some of the more conservative justices are now getting a chance to, to ask their questions. I'd be interested to hear what they have to say to uh, the former president's attorneys. And we'll have to keep monitoring that. Yeah. I think the big thing to consider here is, is uh, frankly, this issue of who determines 
if the insurrection clause applies? Is it the Supreme Court, given that you're right, he hasn't been convicted of insurrection, or is it up to individual states who look at what, what Colorado did was look at the uh, the January 6th committee, right, mm-hmm. the facts developed during that investigation, and decided on, well, actually, the suit was brought, brought by a voter, Norma Anderson, that's mm-hmm. why it's called Trump v. Anderson, who said, based on what I've seen, this person is an insurrectionist and should be removed from the ballot, and the Colorado Supreme Court using its own uh, evidence, agreed. Well, then what happens to all of the individuals who have been, you know, the hundreds of people who have been convicted of taking part in that capital insurrection is what it's called. Are they then barred? All these hundreds of people then would be barred from running from any office. Oh, definitely the guy with the horns. Yeah. If you verbally supported the insurrection, say mm-hmm. any candidate here in Washington I state say, who is on the far right and said, yeah, we needed to take back our country. Do they get barred? I would say anybody who's convicted, of, just convicted. Of, the, of participating in that would probably be uh, barred from office. Not yes. just verbally supporting insurrection. Well, no, no, that's freedom of speech. You can support yeah. it. But if you took an overt act to either give aid and comfort or to support overturning the government. Yeah, I think that would get you in trouble. Well, then, uh, under that definition, the former president would be able to run. As you heard yesterday, our legislators at Olympia have taken up the issue of graffiti, and there's actually some uh, unanimity on that, that it's time to actually launch an organized attack. One of the bills actually focused on using traffic cameras to catch the taggers. That got approved. And there's another bill that is involving a pilot program to use drones. Yes, flying paint drones to paint over the graffiti. We want to learn more, so we called up the sponsor of the bills, ranking Republican on the House Transportation Committee, Representative Andrew Barkas. You know, I have been working um, with limited tax resources, as we say, uh, to work on all the infrastructure here in Washington State. So think Tacoma and all this stuff. And it's so disheartening to see a beautiful project completed where, you know, we spend about 10 percent of that budget on the art and everything else to be completely defaced with graffiti. I was in Spokane here a couple months back and they're dedicating the new north south freeway and and just knowing full well that that seven mile stretch is going to be covered in graffiti. Just got to stop it. It was a final straw for me last year. The bill that passed off the floor was uh, the bill that uh, I introduced last year about uh, changing some of the accountability and and, and, and talking about uh, putting in uh, community services restitution. And then I have another bill that's moving through the transportation committee. Uh, with uh, regards to uh, mitigation and new technology and so to try to catch, but also to uh, find a way and found out about some pretty cool stuff to be able to remove the graffiti. So tell us about that. This was the this was the uh, paint drones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I didn't think the bill that we passed yesterday was actually going to even come back because they told me they weren't going to run it uh, because it messes with the criminal justice system. And we just don't do a lot of that here in the legislature. So I was surprised and happy to see that come back and pass 97 to zero off the floor. So it's a good thing. The other one, uh, you know, when we put it forth, it's turned into a pilot project, Dave, because I met with uh, the Department of Transportation. They said, look, we want to do this, but in order to cover graffiti, we have to send out a crew, usually seven, eight people in a high lift truck to paint over it and everything else. There's new technology where a drone loaded up with the paint, they send the drone up, two guys can sit in the truck, operate the drone, paint over it so they can keep after this quicker and get it covered quicker, less expensive. So they're looking at this technology, but also I asked, hey, You've got cameras everywhere. 
can't you identify the people who are doing this? And they said, well, our traffic systems really need updates on the cameras. We need higher resolution cameras so we can start to identify those people and get that to law enforcement. I said, tell me what it will take to do that. So we're working on a bill that will have a pilot project to explore these different technologies, get back to the legislature so then we can find a way to appropriate and, and put this into place. So these two things working together, I believe will actually start to bring some results to uh, correct this problem. So higher resolution traffic cameras that can identify taggers and these paint drones. I had never heard of this uh, paint drone technology. So uh, we talk more about that with Representative Barkas. Um, I'm not aware. I know that uh, the Department of Transportation has been using drone technology um, for inspections. I think bridge inspections, uh, different things that they're doing along those lines. Um, and we all know that drones can carry all sorts of different things, as we've seen. Um, and so why not paint and have this ability to use that? Um, I don't know if it's being done. I think other jurisdictions, other states are using these type of situations because I kind of I, I asked, I said, why here? Why? You know, I drive down to, you know, Arizona and, and other communities. I don't see the level of graffiti. No, that we not see at all. Less. And so one is. We've got to have accountability. People need to be held accountable. They need to know that, hey, if you do this, there's consequences for your actions. So let's start there. Let's let's do that. I think that speaks volumes to the whole public safety debate. But also, I also know that, you know, it is going to happen. So let's not just keep it up there and say, well, we'd love to be able to fix this, but we don't have the people, personnel, and technology to do it. Let's find out what it is. We're spending over a million, almost $2 million a year to deal with this, and it doesn't seem like we're dealing with it at all. So if we can find cost measures to do it more effective uh, and get it done, I'd love to see it all covered up. If it comes back, cover it up again and just keep doing it, and people will finally just say, you know, all right, we're, we're losing the battle on graffiti on the, the people that are doing the graffiti, and we're winning the battle by cleaning up our cities again. We're hearing from Representative Andrew Barkas, who is the ranking member on the House Transportation Committee. So I asked him, uh, what happens if somebody gets caught uh, under his bill? What are the punishments? What it does is it, it gives the prosecution the ability to order community cleanup restitution. So uh, 24 hours of community restitution. So you can add this on based on the extent of the penalty um, within the statute. So, you know, somebody gets caught, 24 hours of community service. And the idea behind this is if you we used to use this a lot in our juvenile courts and nobody liked to give up a Saturday to go have to clean up a park or do something because, you know, they got caught. Maybe it, it helped change some behaviors there that wouldn't do it. So this is to do that. It also is not limited to public property. So if it's private property, you can be ordered to, you know, put restitution to go clean up that too. So. I think this is a good tool that speaks to, hey, let's not just, we don't want to just round everybody up and throw them in jail. I think that they need to go out and, and take care of the mess that they've created. So that's HB 1800. That's the one that passed. Uh, House Bill 1889 is the pilot program working with WASDOT. It's been exec out of committee. We started floor session yesterday for the next seven days. So I'd imagine that we'll see that bill coming up for debate on the floor of the House here in the next uh, couple of days. I'm, I'm curious. I thought we used to have programs that required people who are caught doing graffiti to clean it up. Why did that go away? Oh, you know, why did so many things go away, Dave? <laughs> we used to have a lot of things that the courts used. We used to prosecute people for doing crimes. And, uh, you know, it's a whole other debate. And I think that we've seen that. Uh, one thing I will say that's interesting, and, and I know there's some follow-up. I don't have all the details, but it, I just saw in correlation to this, 
uh, uh, prosecuting attorney there in Seattle, Ann Davidson, said, for King County, saying that uh, there was that law that was passed and it was challenged. I think it went all the way into the, I don't know if it's Ninth Circuit or, or all the way up, that said, you know, it was a, a freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and it said no. This is a, a you can prosecute this crime right. or defacing, you know, so you now have some tools. It's up to the courts. It's up to our prosecutors. It's up to law enforcement. Let's catch them. Let's prosecute them. Let's make them held. Let's hold them accountable. And let's use this tool. Second legislative district representative, Andrew Barkas. So stuff is getting done. Let's go to Matt Markovich to get the latest on the legislature. Matt, you got to summarize here because you've got about uh, three minutes. Uh, well, Dave, I'm just going to go with my first story then. Uh, we've been talking about this repeal of a lewd law related to bars less than two weeks ago after critics called a raid by liquor and cannabis board agents on four LGBTQ clubs. Senate lawmakers yesterday passed a bill that includes the removal of the state's lewd laws regarding places that serve liquor. It's remarkable, Dave, and what I want to talk about is how fast this was less than two weeks ago. You had this so-called raid. An amendment was made in the legislature yesterday, and it was approved, and all of a sudden the Senate has repealed it. That's less than two weeks after wow. an incident happened. Was this bipartisan or just the Democrats? No, it was just the Democrats. Uh-huh. I just want to play the, the little bit by Jamie Peterson. He's from Capitol Hill. He's part of the LGBTQ uh, caucus there, and he proposed this. And uh, here's what he had to say. We are in a moment in our country's history when members of the LGBTQ community feel under siege. And that sense of safety was shattered by the actions of the Liquor Control Board. So, Mr. President, this may seem to some like a, a bit of an overreaction just to repeal the, uh, the entire uh, regulation. But from my perspective, the importance of the legislature's making a very clear statement to our community that they are safe, that they are valued, that we are going to protect them in their safe spaces. Does this mean anything goes anywhere? You could be naked in a public park now or what? No, this is not uh, this. The loot laws involving like areas like a public park, those are still in place. Obscene behavior laws. Uh, This only affects bars, you know, places where there is a liquor license. So now the the Senate passed it now has to go to the House. Uh, Normally would take uh, the LCB said it would take up to July 6th if they had to go ahead and try and repeal the law. So real quickly and the Democrats, uh, the Republicans basically said, how can we move so fast on this bill when we don't move fast on the other bills that yeah. we do? So that's what that was kind of the headline I took from uh, legislature yesterday. Uh, very quickly, is there a way for me to know before I go into a bar whether it's one that's going to be uh, showing body parts or not? Uh, no, uh, no I think that may, I think you should try that. I guess you and just got to order a drink and find out. Okay. okay, I got it. Thank you, Matt. Oh, choke points. Let's go. It's time to talk about tires again, because uh, committees in Olympia have been doing things without telling anybody, apparently, Chris. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of executive session work going on, and I'll go get into that in a minute, because we reported on the House bill last week that would allow the Department of Commerce to ban some of the more affordable and durable replacement tires under the umbrella of helping the climate. The bill received a committee hearing, but didn't go any further. There really wasn't any support for the bill in the committee, so it died there. But like the mythical Phoenix, Democratic Senator Marco Leas was able to resurrect the ban from the ashes 
and sneak it into a seemingly unrelated bill on electric vehicles in the Senate and got it passed out of committee. This was done behind closed doors in executive session with no public hearing and no public comment. To remind you of what this bill would do, it would require any replacement tires sold in our state to meet yet-to-be-determined fuel efficiency standards based on their rolling resistance, basically how much friction the tires create. It would likely eliminate the most affordable and durable tires that are available. But Lee has told his Senate committee, the Transportation Committee, after the executive session, that drivers would benefit from it. The Department of Commerce tells us that the average Washingtonian could save as much as $770 in gas with with more efficient tires that uh, use up less fuel on our roadways while also reducing emissions for our state. But those are numbers that are disputed by most of the industry experts. Tracy Norberg is with the U.S. Tire Manufacturers Association. She addressed those rosy estimates during the House, which did have a public hearing. I think the estimates that we see in the bill are... I guess the right word would be very optimistic and and very um, layers of optimism. Republican Curtis King had this to say about the bill. These tires are more costly. They have a shorter lifespan. Uh, they don't function well on snow or ice, and it's uh, something that we should not be considering. So the tire ban is still uh, alive and kicking. And also, stuffed into a Senator Leas's EV bill during executive session, language that would ban commercial vehicles from idling. According to the bill, beginning January 2nd of 2025, any person that owns, operates, or causes to operate any diesel-fueled commercial motor vehicle must not idle for five consecutive minutes at any location. So if you're, say, delivering to the... uh, restaurant down the street, all the box trucks that we see idling in the middle of the street while they make their deliveries, they could face from $300 to $1,000 fine for idling their diesel truck for more than five minutes. Do we know why they idle? Sometimes because it's because some people believe that turning it off and then turning it back on and the exhaust that goes off when you turn the motor back over actually causes more damage oh. potentially in, in emissions. Because yeah, I would think they wouldn't want to waste any fuel if they didn't have to. Exactly. And so also this goes for people who would diesel fueled auxiliary power systems that cannot idle for more than five minutes within 100 feet of restricted areas like. Homes, schools, motels, hospitals, senior care facilities. Would child- I be allowed to uh, test my generator every month as I'm supposed to? Yeah, be? you know, that's a diesel-powered thing, but it's not a commercial vehicle. Mm-hmm. This is commercial vehicles. And that's on your private property. Well, yeah. that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't right? matter anymore, oh. uh, according to this. So any police officer would be able to issue fines if you're sitting there idling for more than five minutes. And this is now up for full Senate consideration since it passed out a committee and is now potentially uh, can go onto the floor at any particular moment. Thank you for watching all this for us. Mr. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, if you're not familiar with ex- how executive session works and how the sausage is made, <laughs> here you go. Yes. 835 Seattle's Morning News. We're going to get back to our legislative correspondent, Matt Markovich. We already uh, covered the rapid repeal of lewd laws as they apply to uh, bars. But uh, the legislature also took some other action, and this has to do with when clergy are required to report child abuse. Tell us about that, Matt. Yes, this is the second time they've tried it in a year, and this time it has passed the Washington State Senate. It was a compromise that was approved yesterday that makes the clergy and faith leaders mandatory reporters of child abuse with one big exception. If the information about the abuse is obtained solely in the context of penitential communication, which is otherwise known as confession in the Catholic Church, 
church, then the clergy member is not required to report it. Now, here's the Democratic Senator, Noel Farame, who sponsored the bill. It includes a very narrowly and specifically defined exception for penitential communication, a careful compromise crafted with the Catholic Conference who opposed the final version of the bill last year, but came to the table with me and survivors to craft the, uh, the bill that's before you. So what's the compromise? Well, in the bill's language, it says a member of the clergy has a, quote, duty to warn state officials or law enforcement that there is a reasonable cause of a child may be in imminent risk of being abused and neglected. Now, in 2023, the similar bill was rejected by the same Senate after there was no carve out for Catholic confession. But many senators say it violates separation of church and state to even have this law. Now, Republican Senator Mike Patton objected, saying no part of confession, even if there's a duty to report something, can be acted outside of the confessional. Priests cannot break the seal of confession and remain a priest. They just simply can't do it. It's not part seal of confession. It's the whole thing. You can't compartmentalize it. And it's just not a practical and one last soundbite, Dave, on this one is I want to go back to Noel Frame because she's the proposal. She proposed this law, but she has reservations. I personally am wildly uncomfortable with this compromise, and I want everybody to hear that. I'm wildly uncomfortable with the exemption for penitential communication, but I'm doing it because I've been asked by survivors not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Hmm. Can they do that, though, a carve-out based on, I guess you could call that, what, a religious accommodation? Would it fall into that category? Well, they're trying to push something through to make them mandatory reporters. Uh, hmm. We're one of five states that don't have a law like this. And so they're trying to find a compromise with least members of the legislature who have who are Catholic. And that's what happened last year. So the fact that they went to the Catholic Church and worked out this compromise that priests can have a duty so they can call, you know, uh, child protective services or law enforcement if they, mm -hmm. and only report about the child, not the person who's confessing. They I just see. kind of they tip off the child, so if they have the child information. And the Catholic Church says, you know, we're okay with that. That won't The priest won't lose his job over that one. And uh -huh. so that's what we have. Okay, uh, quickly, stealthing. Uh, this is intriguing. Uh, tell me how this works. So stealthing is the non-consensual removal of a sexually protective device. Now, it passed the House, a 64-33 yesterday, and I'm just going to go right to Liz Berry Hunt, and she'll explain what it is. This bill will allow survivors of sexual assault to be compensated for the real harm that is done to them by stealthing or the non-consensual removal of a sexually protective device. And so basically, this creates a cause of action. You can sue your partner. Not It's not a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. You sue your partner for up to $5,000 if they remove a protected device. But the big issue, Dave, real quickly, is the man is not protected. If a woman has a device like a diaphragm or IUD and it's in their body and they don't tell their partner that they removed it, this bill does not cover that. The man is still on the hook for the pregnancy uh, and a lot of Republicans were upset with that, and they took issue with that. So it's going to go on wow. to the uh, Senate now. But uh, the, the, it's just basically aimed at women. But if a woman removes a protective uh, anti-pregnancy device, um, th it doesn't cover them. From and it's the about pregnancy, not about STIs. It is about STIs as okay. well. Okay. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Matt Margovich, thank you, Matt. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.